Welcome to episode 20 of the Media Sport Podcast Series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, speaking to you in the lead-up to the opening ceremony of the 2016 Summer Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. I'm joined by one of the world's leading experts on sports media and Olympic media in particular, Professor Andy Billings, who has been kind enough to take time out of his evening to speak with me via Skype. As many listeners will be aware, Andy is Director of the Alabama Program in Sports Communication and the Ronald Reagan Chair of Broadcasting in the Department of Telecommunication and Film at the University of Alabama in the US. He is the author and editor of 10 books and over 100 articles that examine a wide range of topics, but which are guided by an abiding interest in the intersections between sport, mass media, mega events, consumption habits and identity-laden content. His singled and co-authored and edited books include The Global Impact of Olympic Media at London 2012, The Routledge Handbook of Sport and New Media, The Fantasy Sport Industry Games Within Games and Olympic Media Inside the Biggest Show on Earth, which is a book I happily returned to recently for my own work. Andy is the current chair of the Sports Interest Group of the International Communication Association and a former invited chair of Olympism at the Autonomous University of Barcelona in Spain. His Twitter handle is at Andrew C. Billings, B-I-L-L-I-N-G-S. Andy, I'm really pleased to be speaking with you for the Media Sport Podcast Series. Well, I'm really glad to be talking to you too. This sounds like fun. I'll begin with a, a question that's a little off topic and quite possibly off beam, but what is the relationship of the former US president to the Ronald Reagan chair of broadcasting? It's a question I get a lot. Uh, yeah, so I moved to the University of Alabama five years ago and came in as the Ronald Reagan endowed chair of broadcasting. Uh, so in the 1980s, when uh, Ronald Reagan was president of Ronald Reagan, uh, there was an endowment that was created to honor the early part of his career, which even predates uh, film, uh, where he worked in sports broadcasting and often would uh, broadcast baseball games on the radio and sometimes even had to broadcast it translating uh, telegraph or teletype that comes in to try and explain the action there. So it really, it's not necessarily a sports-specific endowed chair, uh, but it is specifically focusing on the broadcast aspect, not the political nature. Now, returning to the focus of our, of our conversation, which is obviously around sports, broadcasting, media, and, and the Olympics, could you just speak a little to what you believe the Olympics communicate as an event? I mean, why have you spent so much time concentrating on them as an object of study? Well, you know, at least in the United States, I, I originally started to look at it because I was looking at comparative ratings of other things. And even our top uh, comedy or dramatic television shows were, were drawing you know, 40 or 50 million viewers a week. Uh, still a very good number, but then I was looking at the Olympics and I saw you know, over 200 million people were at least sampling some form of the Olympics. And it seemed like this is the true water cooler conversation. It is the thing that can blot out 17 days of a country's conversation. And I can't think of any other media product that does that. And I suppose in understanding the trajectory of the relationship between media and the Olympics, um, be it television or otherwise, 
In the shift from London 2012 to, I suppose, Sochi in 14 and then Rio, well, you know, what should people be paying attention to in your mind as they follow the coverage of the games? Well, well it's, it's interesting because, you know, really with London, we didn't have a whole lot of discussion of, of uh, civil rights or civil unrest or things like that, but we certainly did for Sochi uh, with uh, gay and lesbian rights. And now with Rio, we've got this odd cocktail of things that include Zika, political unrest, uh, some of the environment, uh, especially for the water quality. All those things are jointly forming this notion of we don't know what to expect. And I actually think that, from a media standpoint, uh, probably will draw more people in uh, than would otherwise, simply because there is this unpredictable nature, not just about who's going to win the medals, but about just how this event is going to unfold on a nightly basis. And I think people are really curious to see, can Rio pull this off? What was your reaction when the, the decision was taken to take the Games to Latin America? Well, you know, I, I certainly look at it from a U.S. perspective uh, because that's that's where the majority of my research lies. Uh, for us in the United States, putting it in Rio uh, was the next best thing to having it in the United States. And uh, what I mean there is really because we're used to in the United States having a tape-delayed uh, product uh, where if, if there's, you know, if there's a 15-hour time lag uh, like there was in Sydney with some parts of the United States, uh, they would, you know, record it as if it were happening live, put it in a time capsule and show it on TV many, many hours later because they could get a better rating if they showed, you know, the core things in the evening. Uh, for Rio, it's really just one time zone off of the majority of our, our nation. Uh, so from that very selfish perspective, we said this is going to draw a huge number. You still kind of get the notion of we get to view a foreign land, we get to learn about some other place, we get to feel like it's far away, but you don't get the time zone problems uh, that especially can hinder uh, the Olympic telecast. I'm thinking about the lead-up to most Olympic Games, be it summer or winter, and you often see a focus on um, construction delays, political conflict, environmental issues, as you, you've mentioned. What, um, I what's happening in the US around the coverage of the Games? And are you expecting to see, once the Games start, a lot of that stuff fall away? Or, you know, is there, where's the interest lie at the moment as the Games sort of uh, approach? Yeah, I, I've interviewed a lot of journalists that, that cover the games, both uh, television and radio and, uh, and newspaper as well. Uh, they always tend to look at it as you have to be prepared for these issues, you have to know about these issues, you have to set the table about these issues, and then be ready to see if something new unfolds. Uh, but if something doesn't, as soon as they start awarding medals, then it becomes... You know, there's so many different stories competing for time, whether that's space in a newspaper or time uh, on television, uh, that barring something new, they aren't going to report something that we've already heard before. So with Sochi, if there were a protest, if there was something that really, you know, caused an athlete to be uncomfortable, whatever it is, they would cover it. Uh, but if not, really, after you hit the opening ceremony, that story's over. 
And I think for Rio, that's going to be roughly the same issue. Uh, if, if any of these problems that we've heard about uh, develops in some noticeable way, then we're going to revisit that. But if not, it seems as if media feels like, you know, the truth is, you know, they might be able to report on a quarter of the stories uh, that they wish they could report on because there's just so much going on simultaneously at the Olympics. You mentioned there that you've been you've been speaking with or interviewing journalists and so on. What what research are you conducting in relation to the 2016 games? Well, I've got a variety of things going on. So so I'll start with the big thing, which is you know the very first book I wrote uh, was Olympic Media Inside the Biggest Show on Television. And uh, it was looking 10 years ago at the 2006 uh, Olympic Games. And that was looking at the content and the effects, but it also had this, this uh, hopefully compelling angle, which was looking at, uh, for us, it's the national broadcasting company, NBC, that covers the games. And I got to interview the core people within that media structure. So... So the president of NBC Sports, the producers, the anchors, and the reporters all went on record. And uh, so, so it really became this good ebb and flow of how content is created, what content did you get, and what was the impact of that content. And that seemed to go well. So, so the big thing I'm working on uh, with two other scholars, uh, James Angelini from the University of Delaware and uh, Paul MacArthur at Utica College, uh, we're revisiting that. And so now I, I, you know, before I just wrote it on my own, now I have two people to help me. Uh, but we are, we're going to look, at, you know, instead of being Olympic media, it's Olympic television uh, inside the biggest show on earth. And we're looking 10 years later to see what's changed. And especially we focus on uh, how issues of gender, of race, and of nationality are conveyed uh, through the mechanism of the Olympics. Uh, because we'll say that those issues really aren't what we talk about, but the bottom line is, at least in most areas of, of uh, sports media, women receive very meager coverage, but that's not the case in the Olympics, certainly not here. They actually, in this country, we, uh, with our primetime hours, we had more women's coverage than men's coverage uh, for, for London 2012, and that was predominantly because uh, U.S. women won more medals than U.S. men. So we're looking at those kind of issues. We'll again go and interview uh, people at NBC and have that project unfold from there. Now that's that's one angle. Uh, another angle that I'm, I've started to work on more that we'll do again this time is I'm working with another uh, research group into Olympic media effects uh, through the notion of can the Olympics – uh, make you more patriotic, more nationalistic, or is it that nationalistic or patriotic people more naturally seek out the Olympics? So to do that, we're using surveys uh, where we'll survey people in four different countries, uh, the United States, Australia, uh, Brazil, and Slovenia, uh, to see uh, their attitudes about their country before the Olympics, and then after the Olympics are over, we'll survey uh, from those same countries, what are your attitudes about your country and uh, how much Olympics did you consume to try and get a sense of uh, any sort of cause and effect relationship 
uh, right now, you know, I've done this type of work with previous Olympics. I've done it also with the World Cup. It tends to be that the Olympics doesn't make you more patriotic, patriotic people more ably or have a higher desire to seek out the Olympics. Uh, so we're going to see if that plays out differently in four different nations. Uh, we're going to see how media consumption may change over the course of time. And uh, so there's, there's a variety of projects that I'm really excited about surrounding the Rio Games. Something I really appreciate about your work is you continue to pay very close attention to national identity. You mentioned patriotism there. In a, and if I look at the, the humanities and social sciences generally with their increasing focus on, on the global and the transnational, why do, you, you know, why do you continue to give priority to the nation? What, what's the underlying driver of that? Well, I, I think for a lot of nations... That is, that at least that becomes so activated for uh, the Olympics or really for any international sports competition that other issues of identity might fall away. Uh, so, for instance, uh, and I, I assume this is true in Australia as well, you, you, know, you might love watching swimmers win medals. You don't care if they're male or female. You don't care about their race as much as, Australia versus all other countries. And uh, that happens in a lot of ways. That doesn't mean you hate the other countries, but it is this primal form of identity where it, it becomes consuming something in mass based on a flag. Um, and, you know, Benedict Anderson, you know, talked about imagined communities where we'll say, okay, so we definitely want this uh, American swimmer to succeed, even though we've never met them, and we want them to succeed over this uh, Japanese swimmer, who we also have never met, simply because one's representing our nation and one's not. And that's that's fascinating to me uh, from a communicative perspective, uh, but also this notion of for all other sports beyond the international competitions. We seem to care. We, we, will, we will watch men more than women or issues of race come to the fore a lot more. Um, and with the Olympics, it seems like the flag trumps that. Now, why I try and look at it in different nations is because uh, every nation seems to unfold so differently. Uh, so we surveyed six different nations four years ago, for instance, and we found, for instance, of the six nations... Uh, surveyed, which Australia also was one, um, Australia had the highest level of internationalism, which was the sense of uh, sports not, not really being about competition, but about being part of this global festival, that we should just be proud that all these nations are competing together. Meanwhile, a nation like Bulgaria was not that high on patriotism, which is my country is great, but was very high on nationalism, which is my country is better than your country. Uh, and so it was, it was really interesting to see on these different ways that we look at our nation, how do they unfold differently for different countries? And, and uh, it really, we're at the early stages of it because I think a lot of it depends on, you know, is, is the Olympic media carrier for your country? Is it commercial or is it uh, government driven? Or 
you know, how much media is available for you to consume. In the United States, there's enough media that if you watched it end-to-end -end without any stops or sleeping, it would be seven months of coverage <laughs> that you could watch there. So, so all these things play into it, but it's this notion of the Olympics are something that's rendered for almost everyone via media and for almost everyone through some sort of nationalistic lens. I guess one final thing I'll mention, for instance, is, is the, the medals table which some countries swear by. They will look at the number of medals their country won and see where they rank on the national stage. Uh, and then different countries formulate that differently. So, for instance, for some countries, they care more about the number of gold medals, and so they order the countries based on who had the most golds. Other countries will do it based on the number of overall medals, adding those all together. And uh, the whole thing is crazy when you think about it, first of all, because we seem to be ascribing some sort of, of national power ranking uh, where, where your placement in, in the global stage for not just sports but for everything is determined based on this table, uh, but also because no one can agree on which table is the right metric for it. And also, if you think about it, it's, yeah, I've heard it compared to, you know, it's really a competition on an abacus. And, and, and what they mean is, you know, if your country is really good at swimming, as, as Australia is, as is the United States, you can win 40 or 50 medals. Uh, if, you're, uh, if your country is very good at basketball, you can win two. <laughs> it just depends on the way the sport unfolds. Uh, but uh, in one way, your country really skyrockets up the medals chart, the other one you don't. And the, the persuasive power that we ascribe to these tables is uh, not only fascinating, but very different from nation to nation. So again, that's something that I find really compelling. We're speaking at a moment in US society where there's been quite disturbing events in places like Baton Rouge and Dallas. Is there any expectation of the role of race in the forthcoming coverage of the games and whether that will be, play a role, or is that very much an open question? At the... Well, I, NBC's policy has tended to be that they're only going to discuss race uh, if it's an integral part of the story or if it's a valid first. So, for instance, uh, in 2012, uh, Gab, uh, Gabby Douglas won the gymnastics all around, and she was the first African-American female to do so. Uh, so that was noted on air. Uh, but at least when I interviewed NBC uh, sportscasters and reporters 10 years ago, their feeling was uh, that race was not something you tended to discuss on air. And what fascinated me there was especially I had one reporter who said, well, race is, is obvious, uh, to everyone who's watching television because you can see their skin color, uh, which was interesting because it does then reduce race to a skin color uh, as opposed to more complex notions of not only race but ethnicity uh, and heritage and things like that. And I, I've kind of pushed back on some of that there where I've said I understand it's a touchy subject, but especially if someone uh, succeeded in uh, the Olympics, despite having grown up in a place where their race uh, might might have hindered them in some way, 
I, I think that's useful information. So, you know, in, in the United States, we had a speed skater, uh, Shawnee Davis, who grew up uh, in inner city Chicago, uh, African-American male uh, speed skater uh, who was quite successful. And uh, I think his race was part of the story simply because he had no other people uh, in his community that were seeking out speed skating or anything like it. Uh, that was as foreign to them as, as you can imagine. And so I think, you know, we miss an opportunity when we think race can simply be rendered by the camera. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have more of those types of dialogues. Uh, but at the same time, uh, people really want, you know, whenever you inter interject something like that into it, people say, hey, I'm tuning in to sports and I'm here to be distracted. I'm, I'm, I'm not here to hear about the troubles of the day. And uh, that's something that you can't constantly fight back on because you'll hear people saying uh, that sports should be this great balm for society to heal wounds. Uh, but I think it can only really be, be that if you discuss it or at least acknowledge it in some formal way. And uh, I, I'm... I'm not as confident that we've done that recently. But you're right, with, with uh, a lot of the violence that, that has happened uh, in my country in the last couple weeks, it'll be interesting to see if those narratives occur. If they do, I would expect it to be Bob Costas discussing those during the opening ceremony. They tend to put a few of those larger issues uh, there. Uh, but after that, uh, the... The public tends to want to just want sports in its true entertainment form. I remember Bob Costas, our, uh, our anchor, uh, once said, I think it was for the 2004 Athens Games, he, he got himself a little bit of backlash uh, for bringing up that uh, the, the people in Greece uh, were fairly fond of America, but were not fond of the current policies, especially with uh, starting the war in Iraq. And there was a lot of pushback, not really from the executives at NBC, uh, but from some of the viewing audience who said, why are you bringing up politics? This is sports. And the bottom line is the Olympics is a little bit everything, right? It is sports. It is politics. It is part reality show. It is, it, it is everything mixed in. And so I think it's impossible to untangle some of those things, but it's always fascinating when you see someone wanting to. I explained at the outset of the episode that you have a, a wide range of research interests and one of these is the notion of using sports for social change and I recommend that people listening use their preferred search engine and enter the words Andrew Billings and using sports for social change and they'll then discover a TEDx talk uh, that is delivered by Andy. Andy, what, what's the connection between sport and social change and, and why do you believe sport's a vehicle for that? Well, it's, it's ironically because of that pushback that you get from people, uh, that you'll say, oh, sports, sports can't be about discussing race or gender or any of these political issues. And, and I, I'd like to make the argument that that's actually when persuasion more likely occurs, is, is when you're in relative daydream, in, uh, you know, when you're distracted by sports that maybe you start to work through some of those issues there. And I, I guess the core of my, my TEDx talk is really 
this notion that there are many things that you cannot sit around, even with family members, let alone with total strangers, and discuss. Um, you know, you can't just say, let's have a serious discussion on race and expect it to, to really go well with a lot of people. But using sports as a vehicle for that, everyone seems to have an opinion on on sports and on different athletes and things, and that seems to open up doors that you couldn't otherwise use. So it's not that I think sports solve all of our social problems. Uh, I actually think they, they create about the same number as, as they cause or as they solve. Uh, but it is the notion that the, the conversational gates are open. And uh, uh, for me, growing up in a very small town, uh, where, you know, the worldly people were the ones who traveled more than 150 miles from my hometown. To be able to tune in to the Olympics, even now, and uh, go thousands of miles away to see a different country and see, you know, uh, you see, to see a, a Muslim runner, to see a Muslim sprinter, uh, might help with some xenophobia that you might have. And to see athletes of different races all competing together on the same team or in you know having similarities, I, I think that's incredibly useful. So I think sports can be used as social change simply because of their increasing global nature and simply because it seems to be that one conversation, especially for men, you can kind of count on, on being able to have. If you're with a group of strangers, they might not know about the same films they might not know about the same clubs or restaurants that you may go to. You kind of default on being able to at least talk about some of your nationalized sports. And, and that in and of itself can be a conduit for some really useful conversations. And you've also written a great deal about fantasy sports with Brody Rooley. Now, fantasy sports are a very large concern around the world, but for those living outside the United States, could you talk about the significance of fantasy sports in the US? And I suppose what they tell us about the state of sports media more generally. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I was fascinated by these, you know, these uh, fantasy games for quite some time. I, uh, I started playing myself. You know, I'm not obsessed or anything, but I had a friend from uh, uh, I had a set of friends from graduate school 20 years ago that we decided to start a fantasy football league, and we've continued with that. I was I was fascinated by the way those leagues could form those different bonds. Uh, but yeah, for the uninitiated, it seems to work differently in different nations. But basically, fantasy sports involve choosing players. Uh, who are playing on actual teams, usually at a professional level, and taking their statistics to create your own teams. Uh, so you, you become your own general manager. Now, these have exploded, especially in the United States, in the last couple years. Uh, so when I started researching this five, six years ago, 27 million North Americans played, which was still a very healthy number. Uh, that number, last I saw, was about 56 million. So it's more than doubled. And I think part of the appeal is the notion that many times we see athletes doing things we can't possibly see ourselves doing. We can't possibly relate to, uh, oh, yes, I'm, I'm just a 
couple lessons away from doing that bicycle kick or you know, whatever it is there. But I think there's a whole lot more people who think, oh, I'm smart enough to put together a good team. Boy, you put me together, I could, I could really put this, this team together and I could be highly successful. And this gives them a chance to do that. Uh, it's part of a larger societal trend, which is uh, that we want to be able to have more control over everything that we consume and everything that we do. So, uh, you know, the more, the more channels of information that we get, whether it's in online platforms or in television or whatever it is, the more we want to be able to get what we want uh, in the way we want it uh, at the price we want. And fantasy sports feeds into that because it's this notion of, you know, I, I might be the fan of this, this soccer team or this football team, and I might be so frustrated that they can't win and they, they're on a losing streak or whatever it is, and I wish that they could just let go of all their players or trade them or whatever it is, and, and you don't have any control over that. But with fantasy sports, uh, you do. Uh, if you don't want to have a player on your team, you can make sure that player is never on your team. And there's that notion of control and ownership that seems to come through along with the other elements. So to me, it's fascinating. I'm fascinated not just by the growth in fantasy sports, but now we have daily fantasy and the questions of gambling. But we have all sorts of other things now which are built on uh, that notion of fantasy. So in this country, for instance, you can... You can join a fantasy congress and bet on which bills will pass or fail. Um, <laughs> you know, you can go on, you know, right now you can go on hsx.com and you go to the Hollywood Stock Exchange and you can bet on the amount of money that films will make in their first four weeks of release. And if you think uh, that the new Tarzan movie is overvalued, then you can short that stock. And, and, and so there's, there's all these new angles that are all built around trying to see if you can outsmart the general public or even the people who are in this business. And, uh, and so I, yeah, I, supposedly there's even Fantasy Tabloid Magazine where you can draft celebrities and get a certain number of points if they're on the cover as opposed to uh, inside the magazine. Uh, so there's all sorts of different elements that all play into that notion of you define your own destiny. So, yeah, I think it's a really robust, interesting area. And we've talked about a, a range of topics. If you could uh, nominate, it's a question I ask all, all my interviewees or certainly in the last few episodes. If you could nominate a book that people listening should read, what, what would it be at this moment in time? Oh, gosh, so you're talking about an academic book. I don't really mind, to be honest. I mean, it's an open question at that level. Well, well uh, all right, well, then let me give you one that's partly academic but also pretty accessible, and that is uh, Dave Siren's book, Welcome to the Terror Dome. Uh, because I think that's the kind of book that you know, makes it very accessible to people to get a sense of what sports really convey on a number of these issues that I'm talking about. So, you know, Dave really can get into uh, the politics of sport or uh, the elements of power that cause different cities and teams and players to be winners or losers. And so I, I think it's a really astute uh, examination of that there. Uh, but boy, 
gosh, asking for my favorite books. Yeah, you know, I keep spreadsheets, everything, so I could <laughs> I could go in a number of different ways there. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you want a really good, I guess I guess it's about sports, but it's not. Uh, but it's a fiction novel that I thought was great using baseball kind of at the core in it. The Art of Fielding uh, is a great uh, novel that I think just about anyone could enjoy. It's it's really well done. Thanks. They're, they're nice suggestions, and I anyone listening, I'd recommend subscribing to Dave Zirin's The Edge of Sports podcast, as, and as well as taking a look yes. at his website. Um, which brings me to my final question, which is, what can we look forward to from you over the next couple of years in terms of research or the things that you'll be publicly communicating? Well, you know, I'm working on a lot of things right now, but I guess beyond the Olympic book, a couple things uh, that I, I'd love to that should be complete by the end of next year are a couple book projects. One is with uh, Dr. Lee Moskowitz at the University of South Carolina. And we are working on the role of media in the telling of coming out stories of gay athletes and team sports. And, uh, you know, there's so many different elements within there. The notion of coming out to your family and your friends and your team, and then do you come out to the media? And how does the media respond to that? And so we've been fortunate to be able to interview athletes like uh, Jason Collins, who was the first uh, uh, National Basketball Association athlete to come out while still uh, in the league, uh, to, to smaller stories that might not have ever gotten you know, told. Uh, but we're looking at that through... Uh, yes, through the media, you know, so we've talked to ESPN and places like that, but we've also looked at the major sports leagues and also places like Outsports to see how do you tell these stories and how do you go about uh, negotiating some of the issues that unfold there. So that's one. Uh, and I guess the other one, I guess, is, is fairly Americentric, but I think, I think the lessons from it can broaden. And uh, that is, I'm working with Jason Black, uh, a colleague at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, who uh, together we're looking at Native American mascots. And I, I think that's been looked at for quite a while in the United States, and it's still a debate on whether we should have uh, teams like the Washington Redskins or the Florida State Seminoles. And what I think our book will be the first to do is really separate out the issues between the names, the images, and the rituals. Uh, so, so we need to get at what is the core offense there. Is it the actual name? Uh, is it the image uh, in the logo or the images surrounding the team or the rituals that they'll do that might not be honoring Native Americans in the way uh, some people think? Uh, so, you know, those are a couple of key projects. I've also got a book coming out this fall that... Uh, is called Defining Sport Communication and has 20, 22 different chapters uh, from 22 different scholars uh, looking at sport in different subfields of communication. So it might be sport and journalism or sport and health or sport and interpersonal. And I think that's all uh, going to really help the field to grow. So I guess, I guess that gives you a number of things going on there, but... Uh, you never run out of good ideas. I know you feel the same way. Uh, um, yeah, your productivity um, 
Makes me feel somewhat sagged in my chair, to be honest, Andy. That's pretty impressive. Uh, <laughs> look, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. And I, I really look forward to sort of reading all those, and but also uh, hearing about your insights as events unfold in Rio. Absolutely. I've enjoyed this. Thanks a lot.